very unusual structure. The moon of Mars. Of course I'm going to specify. There's a monolith. We've discovered a base on the back side of the moon. The scientist pulled out one of these mosaics and showed this base. Geometric shapes, there were towers, there were uh, spherical uh, buildings. There were very tall towers and things that looked somewhat like radar dishes. But there were large structures. We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. Welcome to the Zero Brain Podcast, the show that focuses on the unexplained. I'm Dave Grave, your host, and like always, we got an awesome episode lined up for you today. Here we go. Chapter 12, Stitching Up the Moon. An hour with Farouk Elbaz, the geologist and research director, kicked off what was going to be an unusual day. In a third-floor loft above the National Air and Space Museum's gift shop, he continues some of the same work he did for NASA, which is interpreting the surface of the moon. Some of the objects and moon features I discussed with him he saw the same way. Others he did not. He recognized immediately my sketches of the coverings pulled over large areas. I was pleased that we saw some of the same objects on the moon the same way, although I realized that If I had pressed him for his interpretations, some would probably have differed from mine. When I got back to my office near DuPont Circle, as an old friend called, he is an information officer for one of the many divisions in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. This friend, whom we shall call Lou, attended two meetings of the National Capital Astronomers Group and immediately became an expert on the universe. I got a tip for you, Lou said. Let's have it. There are 12 moons of Jupiter. Four of them, four of them are big, and you can even see them with binoculars. The others are pretty small. That's a great tip, I said, arranging the message on my desk with apologies to Galileo and Barnard and all others, except there are now 14 known moons of Jupiter. But there's more to the story. Four of the moons go the opposite way from the movement of their planet. The 8th, 9th, 11th, and 12th, I said. They call it retrograde movement. That's it, Lou said, getting excited. Now tell me how in the hell a moon can have a motion in the opposite direction from its parent body. There are other satellites in the solar system with a retrograde motion, Lou. You haven't answered my question. I was getting to it. You know as well as I do that the theory is the satellites were captured by the planets. He laughed. It was not an amused laugh. It was a, I was waiting to hear you say that kind of laugh. Captured my ass. For a planet to capture a moon would mean the asteroid coming just close enough at exactly the right speed. But it's possible, I said. Sure, Lou said. And it's possible to drop a football from a jetliner into a trash can in front of Grand Central Station. You know damn well those moons going in the opposite direction from the planets are artificial. I don't know anything of the sort, Lou. Not as long as it's possible for them to be captured in a natural way. We ended the conversation. I felt queasy. It was easy to be a staunch defender of the conservative view. 
Defend the faith. Defend what is. Let nobody attack successfully. Use cute smiles and put-downs where useful. For the next hour, I had a difficult time thinking of anything else. I remembered that the four retrograde moons of Jupiter, unlike the others, have enormous angular inclinations from the orbit of the primary planet. All four retrograde moons, unlike the others, are between 13 and 14.7 million miles out. All four have revolutions, unlike the others, of 600 to 700 days. They are all small, like the moons of Mars. I shoved the work on my desk aside and called Lou back. I told him about Phobos and the inner motion of Mars, which goes around the planet three times while the planet is rotating once on its axis. A very strange, theoretical, impossible situation. We started to communicate. Later in the afternoon, I called my wife. She had gotten home early from teaching, and I asked her to get the letter which had arrived a couple of days earlier from Dr. Whitcomb. The hotel he was staying at had slipped my mind. After the crackling of paper, she said, He'll be at the Mayflower. He says you can call him there if you want. I'll stay downtown. I expected you to say that. Did you see his P.S.? Something about tailors? I'd been nonplussed then and intrigued. She read it to me. Did you know the moon has giant tailors? My goodness, is it a joke? A very serious joke, I said. Sam had told me on his last visit that he had interesting leads for me regarding the current activity on the moon. He came in contact with a lot of people associated with the space effort in his work, and when he heard something interesting, he often passed it on to me. At 5.30, Sam had not arrived. There were too many planes due to that evening from the coast for me to guess which one he'd be on. I crossed DuPont Circle as the red and blue and yellow lights up and down Connecticut Avenue were beginning to show through the evening haze. Coming toward me past the Old Stein restaurant was a human wreck. He looked 80, but was probably 50. Wore a ragged coat with the stains of a thousand short-order meals. Had roomy eyes. I usually saw him up around Q Street, but as he shuffled beside me, I gave him the customary quarter. All the way down Connecticut Avenue, I kept thinking about the time since Homo sapiens was first on Earth. The hundreds of thousands of years spent learning how to grow things and build shelters and solve problems. All kinds of social and technical and personal problems. And there, at the pinnacle of all those thousands of generations of struggling and learning and evolution, was this roomy-eyed man with my quarter. I wondered when and how the occupants of the moon had solved these kinds of problems. Two martinis and a chunk of prime ribs later, I'd purged myself of pseudo-philosophy, and when I'd next tried for Sam Whitcomb at the desk of the Mayflower, he was in. He met me ten minutes later in the lobby, and he'd been champagned and dined so much on the flight that now all he wanted to do was walk and talk. We went down to Pennsylvania Avenue because he liked the symbol of the White House. I had a happy image of sitting in on a long talk between Elbaz and Whitcomb, an honest talk about the moon as it is, not as it's falsely represented. You're going to hear Harrison Schmidt, of course. Why? Where? He was the first Harvard man on the moon and the first scientist. Aren't you a Harvard man? Don't hold it against me, I said. Where is he speaking? The National Aviation Club. The lunch tomorrow. The Harvard Club of Washington co-sponsors. I'll go. A Harvard man on the moon could tell a lot. 
Schmidt had been on Apollo 17 and is one of the brighter young men in NASA with a PhD to boot. In a chauvinistic mood, I told myself that you don't graduate from Harvard unless you can observe keenly and report clearly. For a minute, I actually forgot that someone up there with a science teaching post claims you can make UFOs in a bottle. Another scientist at Harvard took the lead in a vendetta against Velikovsky in the early 50s, blackmailing a publisher by threatening to withdraw his textbook business to prevent publication of Worlds in Collision. It was ultimately brought out by Doubleday, which had no college textbook division. We tired on 14th Street and headed back towards Pennsylvania Avenue and caught a cab. I asked him what he meant when he said the moon had giant tailors. For a few seconds, he was silent, staring at the White House bathed in floodlights. You see a lot of wreckage on the moon, Sam said. Agreed. The wreckage could have taken place a thousand years ago or millions of years ago. Right, right. One argument the people use for the occupation eons ago theory is just that. Many of the artifacts we see are part of the wreckage. It's easy to believe there were aliens once on the moon, aliens who left. So what's, hold it, what if there was visual evidence that the aliens had been doing repairs, stitching up the broken cover of the moon, pulling big pieces together, and they weren't finished? It would seem logical then that they're still around, still repairing, I said. Where is it? Several places, Sam said. I'm surprised you haven't found them. Someone in the jet propulsion lab sketched some out for me, but I'd already known of them there. I wanted to know the person's name, but Sam blew the whistle. Wouldn't be fair. He'd never trust me again. He's sensitive about being identified with these ideas, just as I am. Just as Sagan and his peers who don't talk publicly are sensitive. Science is not only a harsh mistress, it's tyrannical too. We got out of the cab in front of the Mayflower. A congressman I recognized was walking out with a tall, beautiful redhead. He was on a committee concerned with NASA's appropriations. I had an insane urge to buttonhole him right there on the sidewalk and make a case for funds so NASA could put together a team on the moon in more strategic places than before. The urge passed quickly. Praise God, Sam said. I'll give you a clue to where the stitches are. Have you found evidence of change yet? I had to confess I had not. None that I could be certain of anyway. Then I'll give you a clue on that, too. Try King Crater. I'll be back in a couple of minutes. Came back with his briefcase, and we repaired to the town and country bar to drink Shiva's Regal. Neither of us could tell the difference blindfolded, but it sounded good. The stitches are in the Bullialdis area, Sam said. You know the photo, right? Lubiniki, I said. And A, B, and E craters. I've worn out two prints of it already. You're fond of the area, but frankly, you haven't seen but a fraction of what's going on around there. Well, so show me. I think you should discover them for yourself. Look carefully in the rubble between the craters, and then check what you see with what's in this envelope. But don't open it until you've readily studied the area. I promised I'd play it this way. Look for splits in the top layer of the rubble, Sam said. Splits showing shadows below. Look along the lines of the splits. There's a second place the stitches can be found. Tycho. You seen the blow-ups? Six evenings in a row, jotting down what he told me. You're looking for stitching. I mean that literally. 
Things laid across the rent in the skin, holding the edges together, almost like cross pieces in a zipper, only longer and farther apart. We killed our Shivas and got up. He looked tired. Call me, if you like, between six and seven tomorrow evening, Sam said. You'll be at the aviation club to hear Schmidt, right? He shook his head. I'll be tied up all day at the naval research. A minute later, I was on the street alone, wondering if it had all happened. I got home in time for the Channel 4 news. My wife was in bed, and I got the, out the pictures of Tycho and Lubinicki and set them up with paper, reading glass, and pencil on the game table in the living room, under a strong light. Before they got to the weather, I'd located what Sam and the man in the jet propulsion lab had seen. I opened the envelope, and it checked out. I felt like Balboa and Salk and Fermi, even though others had been there before me. These are some of the best examples of stitching the skin of the moon in the Bolialdus Lubinicki area. Plate 372H-1387 is listed below. I'll put this up on the, on the Instagram and Facebook profile. This is on page 136 of Somebody Else's on the Moon. A couple of illustrations of what looks like stitches. You cannot fail to note the precise regularity of the stitches. They are of identical length, identical distance, apart, and identical width. There are areas of the moon which I now understand better as a result of seeing these examples of stitching, areas in which the gap is completely closed, but where you can see the regular progression of the ends of the stitches going up on either side where the gap once was. No, the moon had not been abandoned after the cataclysms. The aliens, whomever they were, had stayed or come back to repair it and the odds were they were still there. And when I found the change that Sam said was there on the surface of the moon, there would be further proof. The evidence was piling up, the light flashes and the obscurations, and the rigs working inside the craters, and now the stitching of the skin. All macroscopic, all showing they had licked the gravity and power problems, so they could lift almost any weight and carve a mountain into any shape they wanted. So I shut off the TV and went to bed. The last thought I had before falling asleep was about a matter in which I'd been pecking at the back of my mind for a half an hour. I recalled the big constructions in prehistoric times on Earth, the stone slabs weighing a hundred tons or more each, the transportation of mammoth objects for long distances when there had been no overland transportations on Earth. Were they the same? I went to the National Aviation Club as close to 12.30 as possible and got the last seat at a table in view of the speaker's dais. With me, I had an article by Joseph Goodovich in which he quotes some of the astronauts' chatter recorded as they orbited the moon or walked on it. While I chatted with my table mates, I was seeing in my mind's eye the words of Harrison Schmidt as quoted by Goodovich. I see tracks running right up the wall of the crater. Dr. Farouk El-Baz had stated that two flashes of light from the moon's surface had been sighted by Ron Evans and Jack Harrison Schmidt on Apollo 17. Two by Harrison Schmidt. Goodovich got the quotes right from the original tape transcriptions. In the transcriptions were references to constructions, domes, tracks, and other phenomena. I settled back for an interesting pitch by a man who'd been there. Schmidt talked for about 10 minutes on the age and geology of the moon, all high school textbook stuff. I could not believe what I was hearing. A man trained as a scientist, a man who'd, been, a man who'd made many revolutions around the moon and walked on it. And he was telling us things we could get from any neighborhood library or our adolescent children. After a couple of minutes on energy problems, he was then the director of energy programs for NASA, he ended and invited questions. 
Three times I wrote down questions I wanted to ask, and three times I put the piece of paper back in my pocket, too timid to risk being out of step with the tenor of talk in the room. The questions on oil and solar energy and related issues droned on. Smith was articulate and personable, but something was missing. There's little public interest in the moon, Schmidt said. Kids aren't as excited about it as we thought they'd be. He blamed the news media. It wasn't clear what the media were supposed to do. Finally, a woman in the audience asked a question about the moon and his experiences. His response centered around the cliches of weightlessness and the problems of eating. More questions followed on energy. Then the meeting was ended. I sat stunned, wondered if I'd read the article by Goodovich correctly. I dashed up to the head table before Schmidt could get away. The Russians and some others have said that anomalies were seen by astronauts on the moon, I said. Anomalies which might suggest intelligence, or at least sights that were out of the ordinary. Did you see anything like that? He smiled pleasantly and his answer was smooth. Not at all. And the resolution was, of course, very good. Far better than the pictures. Not a thing, I repeated in disbelief. Nothing extraordinary, such as nothing, he said. Then his voice was like that of an announcer or automaton, saying things in which he was completely disinterested. Of course, I am perfectly willing to believe in the possibility of life in the universe out of the many billions of stars, blah, 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 blah. Thanks, I said, and he retreated. There were too many Air Force officers and Harvard old boys waiting for the cabs in front of the building, so I walked. Half an hour later, I was no nearer my office, but I was, I thought, nearer to the truth. The military and intelligence agency minds, how they think, something, something perhaps like this. There are aliens. There are alien beings on the moon. They do not relate or talk to us, although sometimes they say conflicting and confusing things to humans who do not have any official status, thereby creating myths and rumors which require special attention to dispel. This means they could be unfriendly. Potentially, they could be unfriendly. Potentially unfriendly aliens constitute a security threat to the country. Any security threat must be met by definite and effective steps. The first of these is to throw a security blanket over the subject. Were the key scientists and astronauts under a security blanket? Did that explain Harrison Schmidt's speech and a host of other things? Hadn't Dr. Whitcomb said that the moon program was first and foremost a military engineering operation? From my experience with the data, I had become convinced that an official who categorically stated that the moon was not occupied with an alien intelligence had to be one of the following. A. Unfamiliar with the data. Some people really do talk out of ignorance. B. Untruthful, whatever the reasons, including security. C. Incompetent. But you know and I know that C is not broadly true for officials discussing the moon. There are incisive intelligences and brilliant minds working in and with NASA. And A is untrue in most cases. My knowledge of the data after years of poring over pictures is probably slight compared to that of the scientists and analysts who command the research output of others. The biggest revelation to me was that this argument was also proof, in addition to the changes on the moon and the repairs and the long-lasting lights, that they were there now, this year, today. And we were looking not just at relics, but at present construction. And some top policymakers in our government had to be awfully scared, judging by the tip of the iceberg visible to me. And asking myself, when does security end? I thought of the man who wrote of falls from the sky, of blood and ice, of a thousand and more things ignored or damned by science, Charles Fort. Charles Fort, who said, 
I conceive of nothing in religion, science, or philosophy that is more than the proper thing to wear for a while. That's the end of chapter 12. All right, that's the end of the show. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, and follow on every major social media avenue you see the Zero Brain Podcast at. You can find us on iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Buzzsprout.com, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. I'm Dave Grave. Again, this is the Zero Brain Podcast. You guys have a great day. Peace.